The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. looking at Ephesians chapter 1. This is the last of five Sundays that I've been looking at this short passage, the first half of Ephesians 1, not embarking on a study of the whole book, just telling you that I was fascinated to be able to preach on this half chapter, most of which, as I've told you, is just one sentence in the original language. It's one of the most amazing sentences in the Bible. If you had to read it, as I've had to do, and I'm going to do again, you have to find yourself looking for where do I take a breath, really, because it just flows like an outpouring as the Holy Spirit spoke through the Apostle Paul. Listen to Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 once again. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, help us once more to receive all the truth that pours through this word of yours. May our praise be richer because we have seen and heard the things that Paul was given to say here. For Jesus' sake and his praise. Amen. We've been dwelling the last few weeks just on this magnificent long sentence found in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. We've considered a chain of accomplishments in salvation 
accomplished and initiated by God. We spent a week hearing, first of all, that God has blessed us with spiritual blessings from the heavenly places to our lives here on earth. Then we looked at the statement that is so difficult because it is rooted in mystery that God chose his people from before time began in what we call divine election. We looked at verse 5 mentioning a believer's adoption as children of God through Christ. Verse 7 raised another what we call golden link in a chain here as it talked about redemption through the blood of Christ purchasing the forgiveness of our sins. I could probably spend at least several more weeks in this passage, but I'm making way for Pastor Nichols to come next week, and I'm going to go somewhere else in two weeks. So I decided to wrap it up today, even though it meant not everything is being treated. But here is one more link that has to be added to this golden chain, as many call it, and that is verse 13 that talks about the role of sealing by the Holy Spirit as part of our salvation. But before we leave this today, I want you to see that there's something grand overarching in this passage that is going to focus in verses 10, uh, 9 and 10 especially, about the end of the world as we know it and the drawing of eternal life in a new heaven and new earth joined even to this earth as we know it today. Many people, of course, have said things about the end of the world and from different frameworks and different worldviews. I'm sure that my favorite poet, I don't, I'm not a big person for poetry, but one man whose poetry I did love from even a fairly young age was Robert Frost, the late Robert Frost. I remember him reading an original poem he wrote for the Kennedy inaugural in 1963 with his white hair blowing in the wind and his paper fluttering that he could hardly read what he had said. But Robert Frost wrote a delightful little piece. I think he was expressing his skeptical and somewhat cynical worldview when he talked about how the world would end. It's just a short little poem. He said, some say the world will end in fire and some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice... I could say that for destruction, ice is also nice and would suffice. You see, Frost didn't have much optimism for the future of the world, did he? He said it's all going down to become a dead rock one way or another, either by a great glacial age or by fiery destruction of some kind. He wasn't expressing, of course, a biblical view there. He wasn't knowing about Ephesians 1, where God was plotting and putting forth through Paul a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. Well, we're going to come back to that, to God's master plan. We'll finish with that. But first of all today, I want to give you one more link in this golden chain of salvation events, and it's verse 13 particularly that contains that. And and the theme of our new hymn that you just learned certainly spoke much about the work of the Holy Spirit. We read there in 13, In Christ you also, now he's talking 
primarily to the Gentiles at Ephesus. He's talking as a Jew. He says, you, you Gentiles implied, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we come into the full possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul saying, you, the Gentiles, and I, as the Jewish apostle, are coming into one inheritance together, and it's ministered to both of us by the Holy Spirit who seals our relationship to Jesus as Lord. This gives us a chance to say some needed things about the work of the Spirit. And I would point out to you that by the mention of the Holy Spirit here, this passage, this lengthy sentence of Paul's in the Greek, is complete as a Trinitarian sentence. Because, of course, it began with the work of the Father before historic time, choosing a people to be his people in real history. And then it continues with mention of Jesus Christ involved in adoption of sons and then in the redemption that Christ won through his blood. And now Paul mentions the work of the Spirit. This is a totally Trinitarian passage stressing that Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the grand work of salvation that any Christian uh, claims when we come to Christ in faith. I was thinking about Paul including this and what verse 13 said to me as I consider this passage, stood back from it. It's just such an amazing passage of all the things that are mentioned. And I thought to myself, having been lifted to the heights and lifted literally out of my shoes by the grandeur of all the things that Paul has said are happening, I could easily wonder, my, these things are so great, so grand on such a scale. How could they possibly be real for me, one individual in the midst of the 21st century? And I think that this passage about sealing in the promised Holy Spirit helps me at least a great deal to realize that God has prepared me to be included in these things and his spirit is the means by which he assures me and certifies that I will experience this as I look to Christ. Maybe not a great illustration, but you could think of the way in which the Secret Service protects the president and the vice president and other officials of our government. You know, if you watch the news very much and you see the president moving about, uh, maybe you think, well, you know, I don't see any real guards around him. There's nobody with big rifles. Well, you need to be assured that you need to know what to look for. Look for the guys with little earpieces, sometimes dark glasses. They look very unobtrusive. They're supposed to look that way. You're not supposed to know that they would be ready to leap on you and put you on the floor and, if necessary, have a pistol against your head if you showed direct threat to the chief executive of the United States. And they would act putting themselves, putting their bodies on the line to save the president. I think of the way in which we are sealed, protected by the promised Holy Spirit who ensures that this wonderful work is for us. He's the guarantee we read here, of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. In the song we sang just a few minutes ago, it, it had words about the Spirit stirring us, awakening us. And that is certainly one of the great things that the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit does. 
He first awakened us from dullness and blindness to not know the truth at all. And Jesus predicted what the Spirit would do when he spoke before his death. In John 16, verse 8, he said, The Spirit will come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The world doesn't even understand the peril that it is in. Men and women don't understand the peril that they are in by their lack of response to God or even their hostility to God until the Spirit stirs that up. I think of the scene in the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching. You may remember he was preaching to a Jewish crowd and uh, telling them in a convicting way that they were responsible for crucifying the Son of God. And that had happened right in their city, some of them at least witnessing it, if not participating in it as even instigators. And we hear that when that truth was spoken to them, it says they were stabbed to their hearts. Suddenly they realized they were accountable and guilty for a shameful and amazing, disastrous thing. And they cried out to Peter, what shall we do? How can we escape from this guilty thing that you have announced? We feel the guilt. It's, it's us. We did it. They were desperate. For the first time, they had awakened from their lost condition. And here was exhibit A of the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting men of sin and of judgment. But that's not all the Holy Spirit does. He also and after convicting, stirs up a realization of who Christ is and what Christ can do. Jesus taught this too before he died. John 15, 26, he said, when the counselor, that was his special name for the Holy Spirit, when the counselor comes, whom I will send from the Father, he will testify about me. And he continued more in that vein. John 16, 14, he said, The Spirit will not speak about his own things. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. This is the great and unique thing about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is most active and most at work in the people of God, people of God don't go out the doors of the church saying, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. They go out the door saying, Jesus Christ be praised. Because that's what the Spirit does. He lifts up Christ. He glorifies Christ. This is one of the problems that many saw in the movement that happened in the 1960s and largely 70s, somewhat into the 80s, as we called it the charismatic movement among conservative Christians. Many good things happened. Many people were brought to faith. I don't, don't go away saying that I completely condemned that movement. But there were also many excesses and many doctrinal errors, especially when people were taught that the Holy Spirit was something extra in Christianity that super spiritual people uh, you know, enjoyed or, or had a, the favor of God in this. And, and so people would go around and saying, have you got the second blessing? And people would shake their heads or scratch their heads and say, what are you talking about? I've never heard about second blessing. Do you speak in tongues? And they gave to the Holy Spirit attributes that were not intended by a proper understanding of Scripture. The Spirit comes to stir up those whom God is saving and to give them a convicting sense of their sin, but also to give them an awakening to the glory and the wonder and the power 
of salvation in Jesus Christ. The Spirit is not something extra. The Spirit is not for the super spiritual. That is simply untrue according to the Scripture. Romans 8, 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to the Spirit of God, does not belong to God. That's pretty clear. That's pretty undeniable, I would say. The Holy Spirit breathes new birth into every new Christian and does not dramatize his own presence by saying, worship me, worship me, have this eccentric behavior so that people will know you're a Holy Spirit Christian. No, I'm here to teach you to look to and bow before the supreme glory of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul wrote here, you were sealed. This is an act of God in your conversion and your spiritual growth. You were sealed with the promised spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. The linguists point out that the word seal here is a very unique word that can have several meanings and most of them apply in some way to what we're being told here. First of all, a a seal is a mark on a person's property. Think of it like a brand on on cattle. You know, I often marvel at you see how things are done out in the West and cattle run in some places where they're mingled in with multiple herds, multiple owners, but they can always find who's who by the brand that is put on the cattle's physical being. Or many would say this is possibly thought of in Roman times, a Roman aristocrat or officer would wear a signet ring, a big ring that would have some his initials or some maybe an eagle or some kind of uh, individual insignia. And uh, he might send a letter or send a document to somebody with a blob of sealing wax and he'd press his ring into that and they'd say, well, this, this document came from Junius because I recognize a seal that is uniquely his. Sidelight. My wife did this to me in the 1960s. When we were courting, if you were alive in the 1960s, you might recall that there was a, quite a craze for sealing wax in the late 60s. My wife got on that train, and I never told her. She's sitting there looking at me saying, I'm going to get you later. Um, <laughs> but she sent me letters on a regular basis with sealing wax and something she, I guess a heart or something. That, and by the time I'd get it, the sealing wax would be crumbling and I'd take out my mailbox. My college mailbox had all this crumbled sealing wax. What a mess. Well, thank you, honey. I knew you loved me anyway. So, but, uh, but this was a way that communication said, this is mine. This is from me. And they would put their insignia, their seal on it. Another concept is that a seal denoted security. You might think of the way Pilate was asked to seal the tomb. The, the Pharisees came and said, why, his disciples are going to come and steal the body and then there'll be all kinds of trouble. Seal the tomb. So Pilate said, okay, you have a guard, go do the seal. I don't know exactly what they did. We're not told that. But somehow they put an insignia on the tomb, which I'm sure had a document or something that said, don't mess with this or you'll reckon with Pilate. It was a threat. This is Pilate's, and it's secure against all interference. And then, too, a seal can be said to represent a kind of down payment. If you bought a home, you know all about this. You know, you, uh, 
see a home you want to buy and you're told five other people are going to bid by five o'clock if you don't act first and that might not be true but that the realtor is getting you to move and uh, you put your five thousand dollars on the line so that the down payment the first payment of what has to be paid on that home is holding it for you it's a pledge and that, that is spoken of right here the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God stamps his brand of possession on a believer by the Holy Spirit. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, 3.17, you hear the voice of the Lord saying about his people whom he intends to redeem. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in a day when I make up my treasured possession. God intends to have secure ownership and by the work of his spirit in new believers is how he claims it. Isaiah 45:15 has something that relates here, I think, because the prophet there said, surely you are a God who hides himself. Well, how does that relate to this? Only in the sense that, you know, we can't make people get the reality of the Holy Spirit because they want to picture something. He certainly is not Casper the ghost. I think it's actually very unfortunate that the King James English ever called the Holy Spirit the ghost because I think that takes us off in a direction of spiritualism or mysticism or something that we ought not to be in. He's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. He doesn't have a face. I can't tell you what he looks like. And the day that God first brought the influence of the Spirit to bear on your life, you didn't gain two more pounds because now you had the Holy Spirit. He doesn't weigh a particular thing. He doesn't look at a particular way. He's the Spirit. He's the reality. The, the young girl sang so well for us. And by the way, I want to hear that again, Carolyn, not just that song, but those young ladies. They said, he's God with me always. They said that very well in their song. He's not a foreign person. He's the person of God, the presence of God, making our salvation secure as we grow and mature in faith. More and more we understand the assurance and the peace that the Spirit gives us. Well, I've said all I have time for about the golden chain of salvation, these various initiatives here God's choice of us, his adoption, his redemption, his purchase of us, and the forgiveness of sins and the sealing in the Spirit. We could say so much more about this passage, but I wanted you to see the way this passage just enlarges our thinking and almost explodes all these great works of God brought together in one scope. But now as we close on it, I have this last point to offer the vast scope of God's ultimate purpose. I told you when I started this five weeks ago that the theme over the whole thing was God's ultimate purpose. If somebody had to say, what is God doing in the world? I might say, go to Ephesians 1. It's all there. God's ultimate purpose, his plan. Stand back and survey the big picture. I told it to you a few weeks ago saying it was like looking at the Swiss Alps at a glorious natural array of wonders that were so great or, or you know, being in Nepal and seeing Mount Everest 
the big picture of what God is doing here. And Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, I think, is the most concise expression in this passage when we read this, that he is making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Boy, that's a whole lot better than Robert Frost's dead rock got by freezing or thermonuclear war. Imagine this thing that we've been told God is going to do, bringing everything together so Christ is seen in charge of it all. God spoke through Paul here to show what God was doing in eternity past. The mystery, yes, you fight with it, it's a mystery. I don't understand it all, choosing his people before the world was founded. And then going all the way forward to, to see a great future day after the... This doesn't include anything that speaks about the return of Christ. You need First Thessalonians 4 for that. But it's implied that after Christ has returned and been gloriously seen by the whole world, he will rule over everything. And we haven't seen that yet. But that's going to wrap it all up. John Stott, great Bible commentator, said this about the whole thing. He said, history is neither meaningless nor purposeless. It is moving towards a glorious goal. In the fullness of time, God's two creations, Stott said, his natural universe and his redeemed church of sons and daughters will be unified, brought together, the new heaven and the new earth under the rule of the cosmic Christ who will be head over all. That's the largest vision of Christ I think you could possibly have. I suggest to you that Paul's giving us here a vision of vast scope, and he's giving it to people who usually see things more like this. Let me say, and someone will go away and say, I was talking down the elections. I'm not. Please vote on Tuesday. Very important that you do so. That's what I'm saying. But if you think the whole fate of the universe rests on what happens at the polls in the state of Pennsylvania on Tuesday, you need to read and study Ephesians 1. Sure, it's important that we have Congress people and senators and judges and everybody else who, who would respect justice and act ethically and, and all these things that we desire of our elected officials. Absolutely important, at least for the next five or ten years, but who that you might elect or vote for is going to be in office in 10 years? Important for you to vote? Absolutely. But it's seeing the world this way, you know, affecting something that lasts 5 or 10 years. And here we're being told the grand plan of the mysterious will of God that is God-centered, God-initiated, Christ-glorifying from beginning to end that affects the whole universe and all the time from now until God is seen by all and is glorified. If we ask ourselves, how did we become people of God? How did we become His secure possession? The answer is, it was just done to the pleasure of His will. If we ask, why did He make me or you one of His people? The answer is, for the praise of His glory and His grace. Everything we have, everything we are, 
begins with the sovereign will of God and returns to His glory through Jesus Christ. That's the big picture, folks. That's the exhaustive plan of God that He is about. Let me tell you as I close here, everybody has to worship something. Everybody does worship something. They might not even know it. They might worship money, possessions, power, political will being accomplished, all kinds of things people worship. But nothing else that people worship merits the giving of ourselves, soul, and mind, and body to that object of worship the way this wondrous God does. Nothing that we worship, nothing materialistic offers us anything in return like the worship of this glorious God. Nothing is greater than God's ultimate purpose. His future triumph over every power that speaks against him or seeks to oppose him now will be positively exhibited in his triumph when Christ Jesus is shown to be ruler of all things and head of all things. Christ is central. Christ is essential. All things will be summed up in Jesus Christ when he claims the throne that is already his. And so what a tremendous motivation we have as the people of Christ called by God redeemed by Christ, made secure by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit to join our participation in Paul's great doxology of praise to the God who has planned it all and will triumph over all. Be sure of it. Our Father, we're left breathless. We've considered for five weeks this one long outpoured sentence of Paul's, and all we as human beings can utter in response is, wow, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. We thank you for being the sovereign God that you are. Forgive us for having fought against that truth for saying that can't be true. God can't choose unless I choose first. How foolish we are. How narrow-sighted we are. How small are our understandings. We praise you, O God, most of all for Jesus Christ, who will be the ruler over all. We praise his glorious name. Amen.